Welcome to Happiness 2.02 podcast. I'm your host, John Tuckums, founder, author, World Government Summit participant, and Forbes featured TEDx speaker, an inquisitive human who loves root knowledge. Happiness 2.02 is a mental health show for entrepreneurs that provides the full human cognition and the full breathing oxygen tools to rapidly shift states of mind and increase energy. Podcast guests include organization founders, world-renowned executives, MDs, PhDs, and remarkable leaders who have incredible stories and are helping billions of people to find their happiness oxygen. You're listening to Happiness 2.02. This is your host, John Tuckums. You're listening to episode 25 with Professor John Mew. John is a keynote speaker, is a British orthodontist, and the creator of Orthotropics. While you're listening to this podcast, if anything stands out to you as thought-provoking or remarkable, take a screenshot and write down what you've heard from John. Post the insight on social media, text the idea to a friend, or email what you've learned to a family member. Get this information out there. Without further ado, episode 25 of Happiness 2.02 podcast with Professor John Mew. John, time is a finite resource. Underline everything that you do across your life, your leadership, your books, your speaking engagements. Why do you do what you do? Ultimately, what drives you at your core? That is a very interesting question. I think I have a message. Uh, probably many messages. And I'm pompous enough to think that I can help people. And therefore, I feel almost obliged to do so. I spend probably, I'm, as you know, 92 years old now. Yep. And I probably spend eight hours a day working really hard, giving people all the advice I can. I have very busy sites on Facebook, YouTube, get what you like. But I don't know. I feel I have an obligation in a way. Thank you for, so much for sharing. And as part of that journey, um, whether it's in childhood or uh, middle school, elementary school, what was the kind of that that start of the journey where you really felt that you wanted to help people? It sounds like it's a strong drive inside of you. Do you remember earlier periods of time that, that you really felt as though this is something that I want to do kind of for the rest of my life? No, John, I don't think I started off wanting to help people. I think I was quite a mischievous chap. Mm. Um, quite wild I was. My father was very philosophical, and I'm quite sure he had a huge influence on me. Um, he taught me the simple message, there is a reason for everything. And that really has guided me right through my life. And I'm sure that is why I've come up with many ideas that other people don't seem to have thought of. I, if I'm set a question, I'll say, well, there has to be an answer. And I will go on for hours, days, weeks, even years, on determined to find what the answer is, because undoubtedly there is one. That's incredible. It sounds like your, your dad was a, a strong influence. And if you could share just a little bit more in terms of uh, you know, kind of mentorship or really that, uh, that idea of there's, there's an answer for everything and there's a reason for everything. And uh, can you share just kind of a little bit more with the audience about uh, your dad as an influence? Well, my father was um, in the First World War. He was very badly shot up. He actually died at the age of 60. But I have no reason to know why he had such an influence on me. 
But I can remember being upset for months after he died. I felt it was the end of my life. Mm. Yeah, that's a very strong influence, and it sounds like a very strong connection too as well. And then as part of your journey, you know, a lot of children, uh, you know, they, they move into different careers or different paths than their parents. You know, they move, want to move away from it. It sounds like you, uh, to some extent, uh, you follow in the same footsteps in terms of, uh, but finding your own path, of course. Can you share just a bit, little bit about that journey as, uh, as you got into what ultimately became a career for you? I don't think it was anything grand. My father was a dentist. And he obviously enjoyed his work, and I became involved with him. Um, when I was really quite young, I can remember having philosophical discussions um, about dentistry. He was a dentist. Mm. And uh, these discussions would, oh, I think, start when I was only five, maybe seven years old. And I became more and more interested in the subject. And I can never remember thinking or doing anything else. Maybe I would have liked to have been a train driver when I was very young, but that soon passed. Mm, that's, that's amazing. So it's, it seems like that uh, once almost you had the bug or you had, uh, you learned about it and you're curious about it and uh, that kind of uh, drove a curiosity inside you. Were, were there, do you remember early on as part of that uh, you know, that journey, that curiosity. I remember facing challenges with regards to, uh, you know, knowing it's the right thing. It sounds like it was very clear to you that, uh, you know, that this is what you wanted to do. But were there other influences too that may have suggested a different path, you know, forward? Or was it, it was always clear in terms of um, your path forward for your career? No, I never had any doubt about what I wanted to do. It was tough for me. I'm a, you may think I've achieved a bit in my life, but I was very stupid. And in some ways, my children tell me I'm very stupid now. But I actually did very badly at school hmm. initially. I bumped along the bottom of the class. I was a dyslexic. I failed almost every exam I sat. And I had huge difficulty, even in my later training as a dentist. Um, in passing exams. I failed my final exam three times. Hardly anyone had ever done that. Mm. And after that, I was stupid enough to want to become a specialist. So I took my specialist's exams, and I failed those eight times. Has anyone ever failed the same exam eight times? I don't know. But it shows I've also been very stupid. Yeah, and it also shows too as well that uh, you have incredible grit inside of you. Uh, there was something, I imagine, uh, you know, almost like a calling for you that uh, you'd persevere no matter what happened. Is that something too that uh, you recall? Because I imagine that's incredibly challenging for a lot of people. If they fail something twice, they're demoralized. You just don't have the, the strength to keep on going. Do you remember kind of, uh, you know, that feeling? Cause, you know, going through something eight times is remarkable. It's amazing that uh, you always said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to find a way. Can you share a little bit more about that, that, uh, that grit that you had inside you and kind of how you found it when other people would kind of, uh, maybe even your fellow classmates, they, they tried it twice and then they would just drop off afterwards. Can you share a little bit more with the audience about that? I don't know that I can. 
why do I, I, I am a persistent person. Many of the challenges I face in life have been long. I mentioned to you that I built my own car at the age of about 22. And that, that took me two years of solid work. And I did it right from scratch. And I actually think that was a much tougher thing to achieve than many of the things I've achieved since. Oh, that's beautiful. And thank you for sharing that, that persistence uh, and uh, you know, taking on challenges that and that you're not limiting yourself to a week or two weeks and something that uh, you're persisting over multiple years, uh, which is uh, incredible. Uh, shifting gears just a little bit, if you could share with the, the audience, um, you know, some of those experiences that get you into peak states or flow states or, you know, an experience of flow where everything in the world uh, just seems to be going a little bit more effortlessly, still challenges, ups and downs. But can you share, and maybe it was building the car, you know, when you're at that, but if you share with the audience some of those, those activities that you used to do that get you to that incredible state. I don't feel there's anything strange about it. I just know that if I'm determined to do something, I will. I do remember as quite a young lad saying, I am determined to achieve that. And I almost made it a commitment to myself. If I'd said I was going to do it, I would do it. And nothing would stand in the way. Mm. I don't feel there's anything special about that. Maybe it's unusual, but it um, was just my determination. Yeah. And if you could share with the audience too as well, uh, when you were working on that car or you're working on, I know that uh, you, had, you drove automobiles, you raced automobiles too as well. Uh, you could share just uh, with the audience kind of when you're in these, you know, these kind of moments in time where, you know, it's incredible determination and, you know, these wonderful experiences, kind of how you notice uh, or you recall how you notice your breathing would change or just your you know, ability to problem solve, the curiosity. Uh, sometimes it's kind of hard to put into words in these, you know, in these kind of uh, kind of peak states. But if you share a little bit with the audience, uh, that'd be tremendous. Well, I've always been very competitive. Mm. And I was keen on sport. And in my view, if you enter sport, you should try and win. And in a sense, I felt determined to win. And as a result, I had a reasonable amount of success. And I'm sure, for instance, take my motor racing. Um, I could have just gone motor racing for fun. But I said, no, that's not good enough. I want to be the best. I always put a codicil to that. I say that I don't need to be the very best, but I have to be the best of the top group. Because I think the professionals will always be better than amateurs. And I can remember when I was motor racing, I was offered to be a professional driver mm. because at the time I was doing quite well. And I said, no, I'd rather continue as an amateur. In those days, um, drivers weren't paid huge sums. You covered your own expenses. And I used to drive all around Europe with a camper van towing my racing car behind me. That's incredible. 
And uh, yeah, just uh, imagine just tremendous experiences too as well. If you'd share with a little bit of the audience, uh, shifting gears, some of the small things that you do to maintain happiness and well-being in your personal life, life has its ups and downs. And you know, what are some of the things that you do maybe to start off your day or to finish off your day as part of uh, as your, your personal routine? Well, John, I'm a, quite a philosopher following my father, and I have created many theories about life. And one of them is what I call my theory of happiness. Mm. And I think it's very simple. We normally, and we go throughout our life, are content. I imagine you're feeling reasonably contented now, as I am. Life's okay and nothing particularly good or bad happening. But it is continue to be content is okay, but no one can continue to be happy. And I'm going to explain why. I'm supposing you lose your wristwatch, say, and uh, you're very upset about it. Your aunt gave it to you, and it was very precious for you. And so you were then unhappy. It's just a change in your attitude. Now, maybe two weeks later, you are sitting in a chair and you'll find that the watch is tucked down in the lining at the side of the chair. You pull it out and suddenly you're very happy. Now, you may be very happy, but you're exactly in the same position as you were when you lost it and were very unhappy. So the answer is that happiness is a change in your level of contentment. It's not a permanent state. And it never can be. Yeah, I love that. And thank you for sharing that that uh, that story about you know just losing that watch and then literally in that same position that you were previously, but in an entirely different state. And then now something's changed, but uh, you know the, the contentment as you talked about has has changed. And is that something? Just in terms of happiness, is that something that you've developed? Uh, you know, your own philosophies around, or is it? You remember a book or anything that that really kind of spurred your your thinking? that kind of helped shape that? Or is it kind of your more, more your own kind of introspective thinking that really shaped your thoughts on happiness? I think it was my own introspective thinking. I can remember at all the age of 15, starting on, um, well, I used to have a notebook, but I mm. would set myself questions and then answer them. And so I, I found reading books boring because most people didn't think like I thought. I love history books, they're factual, but almost all the books I read with people's ideas and theories, I feel, well, it doesn't really fit me or maybe they're not very good theories anyway. Hmm. Uh, I love that idea of just asking yourself questions and, and then finding the answers. Are, are there any routines as well, um, just in terms of those small things that you do, maybe to start off your day with a cup of tea or to you know go for a walk? Um, are there any small things that you do to kind of finish off your day or start your day? And maybe it's, it's still, if you're still doing it at this point in time, I, do you still I, I journal or do you still have a piece? I remember I'm 19 now. Yeah. But at my age, I have to be relatively quiet. I used to rush all over the world. Um, I really did. I gave lectures in so many different countries. But perforce, I now spend most of my time at home. But that doesn't really slow up my thinking in any way. 
and uh, I've sold up a lot of research. I've got three projects that I'm researching at the moment. And research here, I find fascinating because you're tackling something which, when nobody knows the answer and you are trying to find the answer. I mean, I can remember when, way back when I was 22, I was very involved with um, brain action. And I was very close to my um, professor who was teaching it, and he was good. And I can remember coming up with the theory of human consciousness, mm. which I thought made good sense. Now, I couldn't convince him or most of the people around, but I then forgot about it. And it was only the other day that I heard some top people, you know, philosophers and uh, neurology experts talking, and they still don't know the uh, um, basis of human consciousness. And I'm quite sure that the theory I came up with, um, it would be 70 years ago, was absolutely on the board. But I think it's probably too late for me to write about it. The problem is that if I contact a, a neurologist now, he'll say, well, what the hell do you know? And when you were a student, you had a bright idea. I think it's very unlikely it will amount to anything. And so that is a problem you face if you are a bit of an eccentric. Mm, thank you so much for, for sharing that. I'd love to hear a little bit more uh, about the the current uh, projects that uh, you're researching at this point in time. If you could share with a little bit more with the audience, you know, just about those projects that you're working on to the level that you're comfortable with, of course. I'd love to find out more kind of uh, the current initiatives that you have underway. Well, one of them is sleep apnea. Are you familiar with that? Yes, certainly. It's when people get old, they tend to find difficulty breathing at night. Mm-hmm. It's actually much more common than most people believe in everybody who snores is basically had sleep apnea. Um, that means that they are short of air and dirty colors brackets and in oxygen, and um, therefore this affects their brain. And it's amazing, but people who have sleep apnea, people who basically snore, are likely to die 10 years earlier than most of the rest. And that forms a big proportion of the adults in the world. So it's worth researching. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. I've got a very positive idea of what it is, but the people I'm working with, I'm trying to contact lots of experts in this field. I feel that they're all looking at the research rather than trying to form theories, because research does give you information, but it doesn't necessarily help you to work out the answers. Uh, fascinating. I love the way that you describe that. Uh you know, really to, you know, the, the forming the theories, which kind of guides the research. Ultimately, uh, there's probably a, a disproportionate amount of time spent on, you know, the theorizing, which ultimately might lead to, you know, answering the question, you know, like the root question. And is that where you spend quite a bit of time, uh, you know, across projects? You talked about sleep apnea. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about sleep apnea or some of the other projects that you're working on too, as well. Well, I, I've, got several projects going, 
But you know, you mentioned my interest in orthodontics mm. because after becoming a dentist, I then became a an oral surgeon when I was cutting jaws up in order to move them to a better position. And I didn't really like that. It was full of blood, pain, and uh, a lot of unpleasant situations. So I thought to myself, there must be a better way. Mm. And uh, I then set myself the task of trying to find out the real reason why faces and the deed, the jaws, grow as they do. Nobody knew. Most people said it's inherited. But that didn't really fit the facts. So I scuttled around the facts and eventually came up with a theory which was based on the limited information I had, but I think was actually contrary to much of the evidence. However, I, I put forward that theory. I called it the tropic premise, and it was published in 1981. Um, nobody paid any attention to it until within the last, what, 10 years? when it's been discovered by a number of youngsters and called mewing. That's presumably because I'm called mew. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of mewing? Absolutely, yes. You have? Yes, yeah, certainly. Well, you would know that it's all the rage. Um, in fact, I believe something like 10 million youngsters are now mewing. Although it was a paper I wrote in 1981, which said that if you keep your mouth shut with your tongue and your palate and your lips together, then your face and your teeth will grow correctly. The orthodontist said it was absolutely ridiculous and ignored it. And they felt so strongly about it that um, they actually removed my license to practice because I was telling patients that they had orthodontics, their faces could be damaged. But if they followed the rules for mewing, their faces would improve along with their straight teeth. But they then removed my license, and at the moment, I'm not allowed to practice because of that. That's incredible. And so you're you're showing results to, for for people and to, that are benefiting them ultimately. And then it sounds like there is an establishment there that, you know, as you're doing great work, you know, they're not accepting of it. I imagine that was incredibly challenging to go through. And then at the same time, you have people that are literally thanking you tremendously for the work that you're doing. I imagine that these were circumstances that were incredibly hard to go through, where you're seeing the impact of individuals. And how do you think, you know, just over the last 10 years, or can you pinpoint a certain conference that uh, really, you know, that interest that in your work, a paper that was published in 1981, is now taken on its own, a life of its own. And, you know, it's getting into, as you said, millions of people's understanding of what they can do, what is possible, and how to impact their own physiology. Um, you, you recall a certain uh, event or just a certain point in time where really this knowledge started getting a reemergence? I don't think there was any particular point of time. Right at the beginning, the orthodontist said it's rubbish. And uh, I was just a young, very young at the time, um, dentist, 
Um, well, I was the Lord for London by then. And uh, they, it, the problem, I think, John, is that my ideas were so different. Hmm. Um, when uh, professions change, they change bit by bit um, in one direction or another. But here I was saying, you've all been doing the wrong thing for the last hundred years. You need to change and do this instead. And they weren't prepared to do that. And they weren't even prepared to listen. Um, gradually, over the years, more and more people have followed me. I think mainly because they see my results. Have you seen any of my results? Yeah, certainly. And as part of uh, you know the reading prior to this interview, but if you could share with the audience too, just you know some of the results that you've seen firsthand. You know, you've you've actually been in the same room as these people and seen the before and after. I know that there's a. a a great body of uh, work that you did with twins. I'd love to hear more about that. Yes, that was just one project. Yeah. But um, basically, doing the, what I suggest makes a huge difference to the way people look, their appearance. And it's not a small difference. It is a huge difference. Mm. And I have absolutely no doubt that everybody followed the tropic premise, which is what I originally called it, but mewing, as they call it now, from the age of eight, and I mean that young, then everybody will be outstandingly good-looking. I mean, looking as good as top models of film stars look. That is because mm. they kept their mouths shut when they were young and probably still do. Whereas the vast majority of people, and I do mean the vast majority, somewhere in the region of 95% of the population leave their mouths open to a large extent. If you look around you, John, you will realize that. But most people don't think about it. The research I did on twins was really to illustrate that. I had, fortunate enough, to have a large number of identical twins who came to me for treatment. And hook or by crook, I would arrange for an orthodontist to treat one twin while I treated the other. Mm. And in every single case, um, my results were far better than theirs. Um, but when I published the paper, they threw me out of the orthodontic society. Absolutely incredible that uh, that journey and just the the results that that people can achieve. It's uh, and it's documented that you've published and it's just amazing how bodies that were looking for small changes to the existing kind of protocols, the existing systems, existing procedures, and then you come out with this really this transformative approach to, to help people. And you said literally 90, 95% of the population can uh, benefit from really the, the body of work that you've brought forward, which is absolutely tremendous. And how can, how can people, as they want to discover your work more, what is the best spot to, to start to really to understand the body of work and ultimately how it can impact them and benefit their lives, which where is a great place to start? I mean, when you're talking more technically here, I mean, I came up with several theories on the growth of the body and on inheritance. And in each case, 
I was, um, the theories I think that I came up with then are still true, but mm. one theory, which is really quite basic cell biology, which I call my um, cell volition theory. Um, I created that, I would think, 60, 70 years ago, and I believe it explains a huge amount of um, basic growth and the process of. But, you know, I'm not with biologists, and if I started trying to contact them, they'd treat me as an idiot. But then I doubt whether even they have realized the, shall I say, the strength of that particular theory. Once again, it's a way of theory quite unlike most others, and I'm pretty sure it's correct. I wish you could get in who of influence, because um, I think I could help many people in different specialties to work out what the true basis of many of these phenomena are. Yeah, absolutely tremendous. Uh, this r- remarkable journey that you've been on, that really, you know, there's a reason for everything. And you went down this path of um, having dyslexia and still finding that that inner grit and really working on problems and asking yourself questions, which ultimately are getting to the root of the problem, you know, rather than the symptom. And now you've developed this body of work. It's you put it into practice. It's impacting uh, millions of lives at, at this point in time. And uh, you know, really at this stage too, you're you're really looking for those next kind of uh, waves of really connecting your work into uh, other bodies of work and helping to accelerate people's journeys. And if if there is a certain uh, kind of group of individuals of wellness or as it relates to biology, et cetera, uh, what, what are the type of groups that you, you'd be looking to connect with in terms of the theories and the evidence that you created to really to help bring awareness to, to your body work? Which What type of groups are you currently looking for? I, I can think of three areas. One, as I mentioned, is the theory of brain action. Mm. Um, another is the process of cell division and growth, in particularly the control of growth, and why animals grow to certain shapes. And still things like, not why does your hand continue to grow, but why does it stop growing when it does stop? And let me think, I'm thinking one other thing. That, uh, oh, yes, uh, immunology. And as you know, at the moment, we've got coronavirus everywhere. But I have a lot of very, I think, basic and sound ideas about that. But I won't explain it now. But I feel it could help hugely in overcoming problems like coronavirus. But I'm um, there's nobody going to listen to me, other maybe than you, John. Well, I'm absolutely enjoying this this conversation today. So uh, I know that uh, your work is remarkable, like what you brought together and the impact that you're having on people's lives. And uh, I just wanted to, uh, I really wanted to thank you today for your leadership, your books, your speaking engagements, and all the happiness oxygen you bring to the world. And a tremendous thank you to all the listeners. As always, this has been your host, John Tuckums. 
you have made it to the end of the podcast, it's your host, John Tuckums. I want to take this moment to sincerely thank you. I'm incredibly grateful for the time you are taking to invest in your life. And if you gained something valuable from this episode and want to give me value somehow, I would tremendously appreciate if you went to Apple Podcasts, iTunes. If you have an Apple product where you listen to this podcast and leave this show a review, you are free to send me a message or email. Contact information is in the description below. Thank you again for listening and thank you for your contributions in helping billions of people to find their happiness oxygen.